Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. My name is Clay Reichenbach. Our guest today is a gentleman named Matt Flaherty. And Matt's an ultramarathoner, which means he competes in races that are 50 to 100 miles in length and can last up to 18 hours. Matt finished second in the 2021 Leadville 100 and is heading back to Colorado to try to better that mark this year. But Matt is so much more than a professional runner. He is a public servant. He serves on the city council in Bloomington, Indiana. He's an environmentalist. He's a musician. He's a writer. He's a husband. He's a friend. The man has diverse interests, to say the least, and he has a beautiful way of thinking about how to navigate through these interests, which he shares with us in this conversation. We spent plenty of time digging into the fundamentals of running 50 to 100 mile races for those of you that are into running or that take solace in running or use running as an outlet. I think you'll get a lot from Matt. But since Matt is so interesting and so thoughtful, we also dug into many topics that are much bigger than his athletic pursuit. Topics like pain and suffering, topics like positivity, topics like navigating through diverse interests and finding your path. I found Matt's perspective to be incredibly thoughtful. I found him to be incredibly articulate. I hope each of you will enjoy this conversation. I hope you'll enjoy getting to know Matt Flaherty a little more. But more than that, I hope you learned something from it. I certainly did. Matt, I enjoyed my time with you, bud. I certainly learned from you, took a few notes when I went back through this episode, and I certainly will be pulling for you this year in Leadville. Good luck. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Flaherty. Well, thanks for being here, man. I'm excited to get into yeah. your story. It, the more I researched you, you are a, a man of diverse interest, and I, I love that. I'm the same, so I, I'm going to get into that. But thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, nice to meet you. Uh, and yeah, thanks for thanks for having me, and, and glad to be on. It's been a little bit of a scattered day. <laughs> I ran a, a trail marathon this morning, a race over uh, a full neighboring marathon. County. Yeah, and I just got back like 40 minutes ago, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And then I had to take my dog outside quickly. My wife is actually sharing on some friends and she'll be back a little later. So it's possible to have a few dog barks at some point, but I've got the door closed. So it shouldn't be too, shouldn't be too bad. Not a problem. Well, what did you run it in? What was your time? 3.39. It was pretty pretty tough conditions and, and course. It's, it's in a nearby state park called Brown County State Park. And I woke up this morning. It was 75 and about as humid as could be at 5 a.m. And it's like, well... That's not going to be great. And th- that may not sound too bad in Texas. No, early, for running spring, Yeah. That's, hor- that's horrible for running a marathon. Well, I'm pretty sure you're the first guest to ever run a marathon the- <laughs> before jumping on. You're not my first ultra marathoner, though. My first ultra marathoner was a professional soccer player named Wade Barrett, who switched over after he retired into ultra marathoning and had quite a bit of success. And after Leadville this year, I think I may have shared this with you, I'll have a third guest, former NFL linebacker David Vobora is going to run Leadville this year, awesome. which I think will make him the first NFL alum to ever do it. So he's Very setting cool. some sort of a record there. I may have to connect the two of you. I don't think he's going to be running your pace, but we'll see. Yeah, that's cool. I looked into Wade uh, after you mentioned him and uh, yeah, he's had some great results. Uh, pretty, pretty cool story. 
Absolutely, man. Yeah, you should check out that podcast if you haven't. He's got a really interesting story. What's on the the docket for you? So you're running marathons on a whim, but what about Ultrafront? Do you have you're running Leadville this year? Any others coming up? That's actually all I've got on the schedule yet this year. So I, I was in, down in North Georgia last weekend, actually um, running the Cruel Jewel 50 mile and had had some problems with the heat down there, some nausea, vomiting kind of stuff. Ended up dropping out 32 miles into the race, decided it just wasn't the right call to, to walk it in from there, which is probably what it was going to be because I couldn't keep any fluids, calories down, which I don't, I don't make those kind of decisions lightly. I think I've not finished four out of probably 45 or 50 ultra marathons. Usually for, I mean, a couple of times with some, some injury that's aggravating, you know, and I potentially doing a lot of damage. So, so yeah, you know, I planned to run a, a longer effort last weekend and it kind of didn't go to plan and decided to hop in this local one instead this weekend just to, to kind of piggyback on that. Since you mentioned it, how often are you seeing a physio? I mean, I'm a fitness freak. I don't do anything near what you do, but I'm constantly battling nagging injuries. Is that something you're spending a, a ton of time and money on is visiting sports therapists and massage therapists and taking care of your body? Not, not always. I mean, there's been periods of time when that's been needed. I had a, a sort of traumatic, like acute Achilles injury in 2012, right when I was kind of embarking on, on my um, semi-professional career as a runner. It was just a cycling accident, you know, kind of freak thing. And I, I've had a bad Achilles kind of ever since. Uh, so I have to be really careful with that left Achilles. That's kind of my biggest persistent issue. When I have other issues on the injury front, they usually stem from some sort of compensation or something going on because of that. And that took a long time to come back from, you know, nine or 10 months before I could really be running again. And, and it was a lot of different therapists and doctors and chiropractors trying to figure out how to get that back. Since then, I've, I've been pretty, I mean, I was always pretty proactive, I think, with, with strength and, um, and balancing and, and kind of range of motion, mobility stuff. Still am, or to the extent that I can fit it in. So I don't, I don't see folks too often unless I'm in like a big training block or I have something kind of going on that's, that's a little off. Probably the more difficult part is when you do have an injury is taking the time off. That's what I'm not good about. I like to do it every day, something. And so if I have a nagging injury, I'm more prone to just keep going and turn something that's a month into a year. But you're a bit of a different animal. Let's back up a little bit and kind of get started. I want to ask you some questions, Matt, about the type of kid you were, who you were growing up. Because as I researched you, you're such a fascinating guy. You're obviously an athlete, but you're also a public servant, you're an environmentalist, you're a writer, you're a musician. I'm curious, did you always have this diverse set of interests? I think so. I was always into art classes and taking art classes. I was in band from third or fourth grade on, performed in jazz band, jazz band marching band, concert band through high school, jazz choir, performed in musicals. So kind of had like the music side of things going on, joined, you know, was in some bands in high school and college, and then always kind of an artistic element. And played sports growing up, soccer, basketball, kind of your standard things. And then sixth grade, you know, I was always kind of relatively quick among my peers. And then sixth grade started running cross country and track and, you know, quickly improved and was one of the better kids in the state at that age uh, in Illinois where I grew up. So it's kind of those three things, I guess, along with academics and just th that I kind of pursued really most, yeah, most of my childhood. And then I still do all of them to some degree, but you have to focus and, and life kind of, I've got, become very comfortable with life kind of being in phases where I, 
I don't have quite the attention or focus on on certain elements that I that I used to because I don't have the capacity or time or passion for it right now. And that's okay. Like that that'll come and go. I honestly I'm not playing a lot of music right now, even though I, I love to play music. It's just not something that's you know been been I've been fitting in recently. And that's all right. I, I would say out of all those things, running's been most central probably to my identity and growth as a person, as an athlete, you know, and has always played a big part from sixth grade on I suppose we'll save some of those thoughts because I am very interested on how individuals find their path and especially when you have such a diverse set of interests because I'm very similar where things interest me I guess shiny objects in any domain interest me which makes it difficult sometimes to pick a path but save those thoughts because I want to ask you about that later get into your running journey a bit walk us through kind of where you found running and how the relationships evolved short of ultra running, but through college and into, you know, starting professionally? Sure. So, you know, I mentioned I got started in junior high and not a lot of kids probably love running for the sake of running. You know, it's not the type of sport that is, uh, you know, kind of a glory sport of, of any kind. And it's not particularly fun. Sometimes when folks ask me for advice about, you know, getting started and, and being consistent with running, I, I tell them you need to put six, nine, 12 months of consistent running in before you can even really know if, if you like running or not, because it has to, you have to have a, a level of running specific fitness that you can basically run comfortably, which is what you're going to be doing most of the time. No, I love that. I say the same thing to people about the gym. I say it's going to suck for depending on how fit you are. It's going to suck every single day for three months, six months, but then you'll get to that point. So keep going. I think that's a great point for people. So I had some talent for it, obviously. I, I ran, I think, a 5'11 mile as a sixth grader, so 11 years old, whatever that is. I had some pretty good results in cross country and track coming up through those uh, years. And, uh, you know, external rewards and success and, and praise from others is something I think probably at any age we all like, uh, but especially as a, as a kid, you know, it's validating. You want to do more of that. So I definitely found a community in that with my teammates and liked winning and <laughs> liked, liked being good at it. I was probably the top person on our on our team, I guess, through you know junior high, junior high and high school, which was all the same group, and didn't plan to run in college. I had some, I didn't even look into it really. I, I uh, had a few coaches from smaller schools, D two, D three, reach out to me. I wasn't all state as a high school athlete, so I was good, but I wasn't you know getting scholarships certainly or even recruited by Division one coaches. And I had always kind of had this narrative for myself, I think. And I think there's a pattern here in my life, at least in up through my mid twenties or, or maybe a bit later, of kind of accepting the narrative for myself that others have for me, or that I that I used to have, and not being self reflective enough at that time to to grow or realize that I've had changing values and interests, and how that is reflected in running is I just kind of was somebody who said I didn't like running, but I was good at it, and that's why I did it. For that reason, I always sort of assumed I wouldn't run in college and. Again, didn't look at it seriously, but I got to college. I went Wait, to the so uh, double, double click on that narrative for a bit. So you think the narrative of I don't like running, I'm just good at it actually came from external influences? No, I think that one. Well, maybe some combination. I think that one kind of came from me. There was probably this external cultural influence of like running isn't a sport or running <laughs> running isn't cool, you know. But no, that, you know, so internal or external, I guess, you know, a, a past narrative that I had kind of sold myself on and didn't re-examine in that case. But I think sometimes external factors as well. So I just kind of didn't plan on it, but I 
quickly realized when I was in my freshman year how much I missed it and how much I valued it. And and you know, within a month, I was <laughs> wanting to walk onto the team. I was totally lost, you know, uh, like I think a lot of freshmen can be, especially at big schools. I was at University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, you know, 40,000 students or whatever it is. And yeah, didn't really find a good fit there in my freshman year. So, you know, I was running with some, a few guys and and talked to the the coach who was new at the time about walking on and trained mostly on my own for a year, building back to that and was able to to walk on and actually run a, the Big Ten meet and some things like that my sophomore year, which was really, really terrific and, and very gratifying. Well, it sounds like what you were missing as much as the running was the community. You hadn't found your community and you subconsciously realized that you needed that community again. Do you feel like there was a lot of that your freshman year? Yeah, I think, no, I did not, I didn't have good community my freshman year, certainly. And, and that was definitely a big part of it. And I think over the course of my running career, I guess 25 years now, I've been running at a fairly serious level. I've only grown to need it and like it and love it inherently for what it is more and more. And it's probably some, I was somewhere in the middle at that time. I, I really did start to learn to love running for the sake of running, but the community was absolutely a, a big part of it for sure. What is it that you love about running? What, what is it now? I mean, pull yourself forward now. Why, why would you say running's a passion? Why do you love running? I think there's a lot of reasons. I, I feel better <laughs> when I do it mentally, physically, emotionally. I, do you know since college I've done ninety eight percent of my running alone. I don't listen to music. I don't listen to podcasts. I just run. I love when I'm on trails, of course, and out in you know parks and nature. But I enjoyed running in Chicago when I lived there too, and running on the lakefront path. It's to me, it's fairly meditative and not in a intentional way, but but in a way where you you know you kind of zone out. The best analogy I have, maybe uh, <laughs> there's probably better ones, is if you were to drive across the country by yourself with no radio and no other stimuli, like what would you think about? And anything and everything and nothing, you know, when you got done with a trip, you probably couldn't tell anyone what you thought about. And that's how like a run feels to me. It's just kind of like a a blank space (laughs) to check out or maybe process some things that are going on. But, you know, I always feel better afterwards. No, I think that's beautifully said. I really do. Well, let's move forward until your professional career. So you were running in college, tell me, are you running the mile? Is that what you were running? Yeah, kind of a combination. Uh, mile, steeplechase, cross country. I, sh- I should have been running the 10,000 meters, honestly. I don't know what I was thinking. I've, I've always been a kind of pure endurance athlete. <laughs> so I don't know why I was stubbornly sticking to some of those shorter distances. But I didn't have a whole lot of success in college. I mean, I made the varsity team essentially through my three years of running, but never individually qualified for nationals or anything like that. And our team was so-so. We were kind of middle to lower end of the Big Ten at the time. How does someone who doesn't succeed in college all of a sudden become a professional runner? I'm curious to see even what that looks like. Well, I mentioned that I've, you know, always been better at the long stuff. So I I very quickly got into the marathon right after I went straight to law school uh, at Indiana University in Bloomington, where I live now. So that's how I first got to Bloomington. And I was training for a marathon, I think the spring of, of my first year. And I'd run one over the summer, first one, uh, just kind of on a whim when I was working in Glacier National Park in Montana. That's a whole other thing. I trained for one that first year of law school, and I ran 226 and got second, I think, at the St. Louis Marathon. So that was like a pretty good debut. I was impatient the next few years as I tried to get down to the Olympic Trials qualifying standard, which was 222 at that time. And, you know, certainly I actually have run faster than that now, but the standards changed (laughs) as well. 
I thought I could do 222 next time out, you know, and I, and I really needed to be a little more patient and incremental with, with how it was going. I didn't, wasn't a strong enough athlete yet. And I didn't know the marathon distance well enough yet. So I didn't improve on that for a little while, but was running, you know, pretty strong half marathons and marathons through law school. But it wasn't until I found trail and ultra marathon running that I had an opportunity to make some money and, and, you know, be a sponsored athlete and, and kind of take that leap uh, by 2012, which I was, um, what year did you graduate college? 2007 was college. So five years later. Okay. So there's, there's a five year gap where you're really running for a passion. You feel like you've got some sort of talent, maybe could make the Olympic trials. And there's that five year period where you're not running professionally, you're working. And then in 2012, when you become a professional, that's actually in the ultra ranks. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So the first sponsorship right out the gate, along with a few others that followed, um, was with Solomon, which is a you know shoe apparel ski company. They were my primary sponsor for the eight years or so that that uh, I was with them. So I actually decided to to quit my job, uh, which was at a large law firm in Chicago at that time, because it wasn't a good fit, and just kind of go all in on running and and figure it out. You know, I was like, I know I don't make enough money in the sport. If I if I had been wildly successful. I mean, the top folks in the sport, even at that time, did make enough to live on. It's just hard to do. There's only a handful of folks who really do that. That's true even in you know track and field. And almost everybody has to find some other way to cobble it together. I've always been a, a big student of the sport, You know, picking the brains of my coaches, reading everything I can get my hands on. Uh, so I had a pretty sound grounding and training theory at that point, had been coaching myself for five years and started to coach others. So that was a pretty easy pivot to kind of start a coaching business, essentially. So personal run coaching some folks in Chicago where I was living at the time, but also remotely. And I did that for 10 years, just recently wrapped that up and then started writing for magazines. So that's how I made it work for me, that combination of coaching, writing and and running. So how does how does one find the ultra? Obviously, you knew it existed. So I've always been a trail runner. I grew up kind of at the end of a dead end street with a you know a couple hundred acres of woods behind me. And I made trails as a kid and ran on them and I've always considered myself like adept technically on on trails, always liked running trails. Didn't know much about ultra marathons as a sport. I was sort of vaguely aware of who Dean Carnazes was. I think I saw uh, an article about Scott Jurek, you know, in Runner's World or something. But when I was in Bloomington in law school, I had a few um, friends who who were 10 to 20 years older than me who were runners and, and did trail running around here and a few ultra marathon distance type of things. What got me to step into one was I was doing longer and longer long runs for training for the marathons. I got, I got to the point where I was doing 30 mile long runs for my marathon training, which of course is longer than a marathon. And there's some nice benefits to that. And I was kind of already doing that in training. And I figured, well, you know, 50 is not that much longer. And it was a trail race out in California at that time. It's called the North Face Endurance Challenge, like championship series. It doesn't exist anymore, but they had the biggest prize purse in ultra running. So they were giving away 10 grand for the win, four grand per second, I think a grand for third. And I signed up for it and, and went out there in 2010 for my first ultra. I looked at the times. I didn't understand that elevation uh, gain and, and change and the and the climbing and hills and all that and other things that went into it. But I kind of looked at what won and I was like, I think I can do that. So I decided to go give it, give it a give it a shot. I was actually training for it in Chicago because I'd moved to Chicago that summer to start my uh, law job. Yeah, I can I can say how that went if you're interested. Yeah, <laughs> or, how uh, did you do? Did you win it? I'm sitting here waiting. I didn't. I didn't win it. Uh, <laughs> okay. I was I was in the lead pack with some guys named Dave Mackey, Jeff Rose, a couple of uh, European athletes from Solomon. We we kind of broken away from everybody, the five of us, through maybe 30 miles. I had trained in Chicago, which is obviously super flat, but I lived in an 18 story apartment building, so I did 
stairs. You know, I remember my longest training run was 37 miles and I did 10 mile out and backs on the lakefront path with a half hour of stair climbing in between each time. And then like a progression run at the end. And I was actually super fit for the climbing. Like I was climbing with those guys all day long, no problem. And then I learned about the eccentric loading of, of continuous downhill running on the quads and my quads just basically completely blew out, you know, mile 30, 32, something like that was pretty ugly coming in. I, I think I got like 20th or something like that. I want to linger on your training for a bit because when I was listening to you in preparation, I understand that even for 100 mile runs, you don't get anywhere near 100 miles when you're training. I think you said you top out around 40 miles. Is that correct? Yeah, that's pretty typical unless you're going to do maybe that 40 is about the longest I'll do in a training run unless I'm going for like, you know, fastest known time on a longer route, or if I'm doing a race, a lot of folks build in like a 50 miler or a hundred K race, six to 12 weeks out from their hundred mile goal race, take it a little more casually. And that's kind of their big, biggest training effort. But last year before Leadville, the longest run I had was 32 miles. I hadn't raced an ultra longer than that in years. Here's my question is how can you be confident about how your body's going to react or confident about your performance late in races when you haven't even touched 70 or 80 miles, much less 100? Well, last year uh, was the first 100 mile I ran. So that was, I was, I was in new territory. I was pretty committed to getting across the line, whatever it took, but it ended up being a really terrific day. The biggest thing I was concerned about was my stomach and, and being able to take in enough calories and fluids throughout the day. That gets difficult after a time. Your stomach can really revolt on you. <laughs> And didn't have major problems in that regard. Was able to figure out a combination of things that that worked for me. And you really just don't need to run that long. I'd run enough, you know, fifty mile and hundred k races, including a twelve and a half hour one in in the middle of Switzerland that you know had a lot of climbing, twenty two thousand feet or something in the race. That I didn't feel strange about the distance. I felt like I was a little underprepared for it. Is there just, there's no benefit past a certain level? You're not gaining additional benefit by doing 80 mile training runs. You're just tearing no, the body down. No. Yeah. There's, there's not, there's not like a meaningful adaptation there to the extent there. I mean, you might learn other things about, you know, again, mentally or about, you know, your nutrition, but I don't think that's makes sense in a preparation. Again, I think 40 is plenty. Honestly, it's more about training some key attributes for whatever the race is you're tackling well enough that you have kind of the, the skill set or the tools you need to perform. So that's one thing that I really like about ultra running, unlike, you know, a road marathon or a road to like 10 K or something where the, the basic strategy is just go run a good, even pace and be tough. And that's it. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's sometimes, unless you can get into a, like an interesting tactical race for the win, <laughs> In a, in a road race, which I've had a few, you know, pretty fun and good races like that over my time. It can be a little boring. It's just kind of like, it's, it's its own, it's its own separate thing. It's got a, you know, beauty of its own, but trail running is interesting because you've got technical terrain, you've got climbing, you've got descending, you've got heat to deal with sometimes different conditions like that. The nutrition piece, how you carry everything, you know, to begin with, everybody's kind of got a different set of arrows in their quiver and different strengths and weaknesses and learning how to like use those to your advantage on the course and not get caught up in racing too early and all those kind of things make ultra running really interesting in my mind. I can train pretty well for most components of Leadville for my home in Bloomington. I have an incline trainer in the in the garage. I can crank it up to 30% grade and power hike all day long and some things like that. 
but I, I don't have the downhills that I need here. I've got you know maximum 300 foot hills. I have to go either to Colorado or to the Smoky Mountains to run continuous 4,000 foot descents and do that enough that I can have the neuromuscular adaptations I need for my quads. Basically, when you're running downhill, both the forces are obviously much greater on on your legs, and then also the angles your legs bend are more extreme. So you're loading the quad really heavily as you land, and you're going deeper than you, than you normally do on flat terrain. And those two things in combo really can can destroy your your quads. Uh, so you've got to you know have that conditioning as well, and make sure that you're not going to lose your legs <laughs> from from not doing enough of that kind of training. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting puzzle from a, a training perspective too, and I, I like that component of it too. See, I'm such a novice. I thought similar to the way you described the marathon. That's kind of how I thought about ultra coming in: is you find a pace you can do for a hundred miles and you just go at it. But understanding that you're actually planning, no, I'm going to walk or hike or whatever you call it. So there's actually planning where you're not planning to run the whole thing, or is there? Times you're saying, yeah, I'm going to gut this out and try to run an eight thirty or nine the whole way. It varies by distance and and your fitness, of course. But then there's also for everybody a grade at which running no longer makes sense. You might be slightly faster than than hiking, but the energy cost is twice as much, you know, or something like that. So honestly, for most runners, the bulk of including the most winners of the of the Leadville race, the bulk of the two big climbs over Hope Pass, which is in the middle of the race, you know. Uh, probably a 4,000 foot climb up over a 12,000 foot pass. Uh, it's maybe not quite that much, 3,000 foot climb. You know, almost everybody hikes that. You know, Matt Carpenter, the course record holder, I think he, he's a, an anomaly <laughs> and lived, you know, lived it out through his whole life. I think he stubbornly ran every step of it. Obviously, very small steps getting his way up. But I don't think that's the, for almost every athlete, that's not the most efficient way to be. So it's all about efficiency and speed, you know, overall maximizing overall performance. So yeah, power hiking is, is absolutely a skill to be learned and practiced and, and a component of, you know, being a successful ultra runner. That's fascinating. I had no clue. Well, let's stay in the middle of the race. One of the things I heard you say in an interview is that last year you felt you could have pushed more between the 24th and 32nd mile, which just kind of confused me because I'm wondering again, how do you know when you still have 70 miles left, 60 miles left, 10 hours of running left that I can push on this 10 mile stretch? How do you, how do you know that? How do you make that calculation in the middle of a race? I, I know exactly what section of the race that is and what, what happened there. I, I think there's time available there for me is, is my, what, is what I would say my perspective is now that I could running this year, for instance, I can be faster through that section without costing myself more just by being a little bit more relaxed on the previous downhill, not blasting my quads so hard. And I had some other stuff that was going on a little, a little weird because I had fallen and busted up my knee at, at mile nine and was having a little bit of problems with that. So there's like time on the table, so to speak, in that stretch. I don't know if in that, that's when I was feeling worst, actually, uh, most for, you know, for the whole day. <laughs> well, you, and component. you just kind of breeze past this, but you said you banged up your knee at mile nine. Let's keep in mind for listeners, there's 91 miles left that you're running on a banged up knee with probably an altered gait. That's a, that's pretty impressive there, but sorry, sorry to stop you. No, that was not ideal. I, I, um, I contemplated dropping at mile 32. My crew talked me out of it. I was like, well, I'm going to just at least, you know, run out of here and, and hike up because I, yeah, I, I, you know, my knee was bloody and, and bruised and then I just cracked it on a rock, you know, uh, just tripped. It, it was dark. I tripped and, and tiny little thing, you know, 
but um, I, I took some ibuprofen and, and was able to work through it. I, I, but I was deficient on the downhills the entire day because of it. So I, there's time there for it that I know I, I have uh, available as well. So I was able to make it through, but I was injured for several months afterwards while I had to let that heal. Oh, I'm sure just running on an altered gait is horrific yeah, for that you. Too. Horrific. Some problem. Well, I'm going to come back to running with you, but I'm going to take a, a right turn here for a second. I want to talk about two, 2017. So you're a professional runner from 2012 to 2017. And then in 2017, you decide to go back to school. And I pulled a quote from you. You said at 25, I didn't have enough insight into what I'd value. I wasn't introspective enough to follow a passion. And it did seem in a very true sense, you were certainly following a passion for running, but it's clear that you had a sense that maybe you were more than a runner or that you had more to offer to society. So tell me, what was the catalyst behind this realization that you wanted to go back to school and you wanted to do something more? Yeah, you know, I thought a lot about that throughout the the five-year period that I was running full-time. I, I remained sponsored through really about 2020 and sort of running on a professional level still, but but or semi-professional level, but was back in school. Yeah. Obviously, I wasn't going to do what I was doing forever. Or I mean, well, that's maybe that's not so obvious. I could have done some version of those things forever. I have a good, good buddy, former roommate, who's a full-time running coach in Chicago, has a great program and team he's built. He was an engineer. He He's gone. He and his wife both have gone all in on the running business, the coaching business, and it's it's awesome. And that's his full time job and his career. And I could have done that. You know, I feel like I had the skills and ability to make that a career, but it, it never was quite enough for me. I, I really enjoyed it. It just I it wasn't quite the right fit. Similarly, I had some opportunities to you know work for magazines and and uh, web publications and and do more like magazine editor type of work. And I liked my writing in, the, in that space too. I love the outdoor industry. I love, you know, the sport and and talking to folks about it. But again, not not quite the right fit. I think increasingly I, I needed to feel like I was having some social purpose and work for the public good in some way in my in my professional life. Another component of that is that I've always been like uh, immensely intellectually curious. Uh, I, I, you know, dive into new topics and, and read everything I can about them. And I, I was not getting that component of my, you know, my interests very stimulated uh, over those five years. So I think it was a few things. I kind of had this idea that maybe I would go back to school. I, I could have retooled my law degree and probably headed in more of a public interest, public policy space with it at that time. But I wasn't barred in Indiana where I lived. And It'd been, you know, five years since I practiced law and I didn't do that type of work when I was a lawyer. So it, it wouldn't have been the easiest thing in the world. And increasingly, I realized that environmental and climate work was like a good fit for me or some, something like that. And I was debating how best to tackle that. I looked at PhD programs in economics and urban regional planning and things like that. My wife's an urban planner and I'd become very interested in uh, that type of work that she does. But she had just gotten a promotion here in Bloomington. We like our life here, uh, good friends and, and you know community. And the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs here at Indiana University is the top program in the country for environmental policy and affairs. So it was a low cost, pretty easy way to go back. I think I had in my mind that I would be able to train a little more than I <laughs> than I did. School was very busy. I worked as a researcher on a, on a team as well. And was the editor-in-chief of a journal that was getting started and some other things like that and performed very well academically, which is actually not exactly my my history. I always was some, I mean, I did fine, you know, 
but I was always somebody getting a few B's. Like it just, I never was like a straight A student, but then all of a sudden in grad school, I was, and I got one A minus in a PhD stats class that I took and that was it. And I just, I, I cared about performing well and learning well and, and just learning everything I could in school in a way that I probably had never really been motivated by school in the past. I think that comes with maturity. I say it all the time. I think schooling's wasted on the youth. I mean, I <laughs> if I had yeah. the intellectual curiosity at 18 that I do at 39, I would have blown school out of the water. And actually, I think I would have made better choices about the paths I took. Let me ask you more about the path. I mentioned this earlier. I feel like it's difficult for most adults to even recognize a passion, much less commit to pursuing that passion with enthusiasm, especially when they're like you and you have all of these diverse interests. You're you're a musician, you're a writer, you're a runner, you're an environmentalist. What do you think it is about you that allowed you to see your path so clearly or did you see it clearly? No, I don't think I did. And in fact, I'm on my like fourth or fifth career or something, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm all over the board. So, so. <laughs> so five years later, check in with you and see if you're still on the same path. Yeah, but, but that's fine with me. I, that's something I learned to embrace and feel great about. Go deep you know, on that. Through, I like that. Go deep on that. You know, I think another way I put it with folks sometimes is is I'm a big fan of folks quitting things. Uh, when somebody quits, I feel like it's usually a, a, a decision they've dwelled on for a long time. And it's almost certainly the right decision. And, you know, obviously, you don't want to give up on folks who are counting on you and, and you know, shirk on responsibilities and, and things like that. But I just mean when you when people quit a job or quit a career to do something new and different and figure it out, nobody's certain about what's coming next. But it takes a lot of courage to, to do that. And I think it's almost always the right call. And, and I think a lot of folks can get stuck in, in careers and jobs and lives that you know that that aren't really very meaningful or rewarding or satisfying to them and i think we should all embrace a little more the idea of of changing things up if if it's not the right fit but that requires a lot of i, I guess yeah you know some some willingness to take a chance but also a lot of reflection on what is bringing you uh, joy what your values are if your current situation is or could fulfill those needs well i'll also make the observation that It seems like you're comfortable with uncertainty in a way that I would say I'm not. I always like to see my path. Okay, here's the mountain. It's right in front of me. I'll go climb that son of a bitch. If I can't find the mountain or it's a little cloudy on where the mountain is, it sounds like that's a space you're comfortable in. That's a space where I have anxiety. And so I I do think maybe it takes a bit of personality, but I love that line of thinking of, finding comfort in that uncomfortable space and that uncertainty because if you don't you're right you're going to get stuck in complacency you're going to get stuck in something you that's comfortable but it's not something that lights your hair on fire there's something to be said about figuring out how to find comfort in that space and it sounds like for you it's maybe a little bit innate yeah there's probably some element of that i think there's a lot of privilege inherent with that as well i mean i've got a family who is a safety net, you know, or can be if I if things ever go really poorly. I think I came to realize uh, in my 20s that I was always going to be able to get a job and, and support myself, you know, barring some some major physical or mental, you know, uh, catastrophe. Uh, so that wasn't the issue. Once you sort of realize or know that, that there's always going to be something that makes the uncertainty a lot less risky or a lot less concerning. 
in my mind. I'll say this, Matt, though, even that is not enough for me. I mean, the idea that I could go live on my parents' couch at 39 <laughs> doesn't, I'm sorry, that I, that there is that privilege for me too, but I would be completely depressed <laughs> going back and living with my parents. And even I'd be completely depressed with a job that paid the bills. Like, I know I can go get a job. Yeah, I know I can go get a job, but are you really progressing or, or making an impact in society, which it sounds like for you? So I would say that even with that amount of privilege, which I acknowledge me too, there's still something to be said about knowing that you may have to go knock on your parents' door. Or you may end up having to go take a job just to pay the bills because this didn't work out. So that's tremendously impressive for me, just given my personality. But sorry, I cut you off. No, that's okay. I think, uh, yeah, those aren't ide- the ideal outcomes, but knowing that it's possible and, and you know, not even the parents' couch thing, barring, again, some some really catastrophic events, that I could get a job that maybe isn't a great fit. I would immediately be searching for what's a better fit, though, and what's next. You know, I wouldn't wouldn't stay there. The one other thing I wanted to mention about that is the idea of embracing process as opposed to results or outcomes and trying to con- focus or control on those or control those. It's a big part of my value as a runner and something I've, I've learned and always preached as a coach. You know, the outcomes will be what they'll be and the, and the positive outcomes will come if we focus on the process and do this for the right reasons. Embracing that day-to-day training and doing the, the little things that matter and count consistently over weeks, months, years puts you in a position to be successful. And that's just in running, of course. But I think that's true for most things. So going back to school, you know, I loved it. It was great. <laughs> you know, going back to school in my 30s, I had, I had a lot of friends who were, you know, a decade younger than me. I didn't go out to the bars with them as much because uh, I was in a different stage in my life. But they're great folks. And I loved everything I learned and was really passionate about it and, and loved every element of that. And I, I really didn't know where, like, what kind of job I was going to get. I knew I loved what I was learning and there, you know, would be some kind of opportunity. I worked for a non-governmental organization, um, an international think tank, essentially, in Geneva, Switzerland for a summer doing like the intersection of like sustainability and, and uh, global trade, looking at those policies. And then the next summer I worked for the Natural Resources Defense Council in, in um, Washington, D.C., which is kind of a law and policy, uh, like big green, uh, some folks call them like, like Sierra, um, Sierra Club and you know, some of the others that have been around a while and did more like energy efficiency and uh, building energy policy work and some communications type of stuff. And then Again, wasn't really sure <laughs> what type of job I would have. I, I kind of thought a nonprofit or governmental agency of some kind, probably state or federal. But then things took a, a different turn when I decided to run for a public office in, in Bloomington. And I've enjoyed like that new direction. I've found a great fit in local government uh, work, which is what I do in addition to the that other role now. Well, it sounds to me, my observation is you were building a foundation around your interest. I mean, you know, I had this idea that you saw this clear path and you started to walk it. I think it's soothing to hear no i had an idea of the general direction and then i went and i built this foundation around it by going and exploring it and going to school which is an interesting point and i want to say something about i love your beautiful point about the process i had a philosopher on a couple of weeks ago which she's a brilliant philosopher and she studies achievement and one of the things that she writes extensively about and i think it's the most beautiful part of her research is that The most meaningful achievements are achievements that never have an outcome, never have a goal. You don't ever accomplish them. So it would be a good example would be being a father. The idea that you have 
achieve that goal would actually make you very, very sad. So the most meaningful achievements in life, they have what she calls self-propagating goals. They're goals that continue to evolve and evolve and evolve. And the idea is that the most meaningful achievements are, depending on how you define achievement, are not achievements all at all. They're pursuits, they're process, like you said. And I think she articulated it way better than I just did. But uh, I thought it was a very beautiful sentiment. And coming from someone who's actually bringing scholarship to prove that point as opposed to us just opining on it. I did something here that I think may be interesting. I pulled a number of your quotes that I found compelling, and I just want to hear you out. I want to hear what you have to say. So the first one is, you tell runners to run to your strengths, which you mentioned earlier. So my question is, what are your strengths? And then what I'm more interested in is in a 100-mile race, what are some of the areas where your competitors are stronger than you, where you're not strong, where you definitely can't match their strength? So what are my strengths? I think for a long time, I would have said my durability when I was a younger runner. Like I I never got injured. You know, I had one stress fracture in high school and that was it, but I could run high mileage. I could put in the work and I, and I wouldn't get injured. Things all changed a little bit when, with that Achilles event um, that I mentioned in 2012, I'm still a relatively durable athlete. That's kind of my bane, but I don't have other problems the way some folks do. You know, I've got pretty terrific natural endurance because I've got a background as a college track athlete. I've got a more sort of speed built in that I've never lost than, than almost, you know, most folks on the scene in ultra running, but that's changing uh, quickly. Uh, <laughs> a lot of really, really fast guys who were faster than I ever was. First couple of those, how do you run to those strengths? How do you run to durability? How do you run to speed in a hundred mile race? A durability goes to training for, for sure. And your preparations. So you can out train. You know, I, I think it's less true than it used to be though. And and I don't think I rely on that strength as much anymore. Now I just rely on what we call old, in the sport, uh, old man strength, which is I've been running uh, 25 years. So I've got a pretty good engine and kind of fall back on that. But in the Leadville hundred mile specifically, I was racing some, some past champions and pretty, pretty good athletes and uh, was Passed by both Ian Sharman, a four-time champion, and Anton Kropichka, two-time champion, on the first big climb up to Hope Pass. Those guys are better climbers than me. Anton lives at 9,000 feet or 7,000 feet. He has for decades. He just plays in the mountains all day long. I mean, that's what he that's what he does. Uh, he, that's what he cares for. Ian uh, is out in Oregon, so he's not at altitude, but he, he likewise has access to mountains in a way that I just never have. So that's a real disadvantage. And I try, you know, I trained hard to to try to close that skill gap and you know they still outpaced me but exercise and patience when you get it right and and uh, the mental game is is a pretty significant part too i can't say it's my biggest strength but i i think it is one and just to put that in my terms real quick so if you were to try to push and match their speed on a hill you would be running to their strength whereas you know there's going to be a section of this race that my speed is a strength probably on a flatter section and there's patience and there's discipline involved by letting them pass you, letting them get out in front of you and being confident enough that I'm going to hit my strength and catch and pass them. Okay, that makes sense. Got it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's and it's hard to have that confidence and faith. But, you, you know, you have to understand that full picture and try. And I'm usually a pretty good downhill runner. Uh, those guys are, too. Uh, Ian's a very good downhill runner. But I, I wasn't on that day because I'd banged up my knee. So, you know, it, it was hard to stay stay positive. Those guys got a little time on me up and over that and down the backside of that mountain. Same thing coming coming back up. I think I was like almost 15 minutes behind them come mile 62. But that got into a, a stretch 
where I was able to kind of turn it around because I, I relied on my speed. When I when I passed Ian, uh, the first of those to pa- I passed at mile eighty, <laughs> it's on it's on video, uh, a short film that that Billy Yang made about about Anton. He happened to get this moment, and I and I pass Ian, and he just goes, "What? He's running so fast." <laughs> no, that, that is not that is not on video. I passed him, in, but he told me that. I, I passed him in his pace, but he goes, you're running so fast. He just sounded so dismayed. I was running like 730 miles, nothing crazy, but at 10,000 feet, 80 miles into a race. You know? I'd say that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, let's. you mentioned that belief. This is my next quote, which I love. And this is something I speak about and think about often from my athletic career. You say, you got to have a little unreasonable belief in yourself. Tell us what you mean by this. This is something I call internal arrogance, which sometimes turns people off. But I, I truly believe that's what made me successful was this internal arrogance. Walk us through what having a little unreasonable belief in yourself means. First, I'll just say, I think I think that I try to apply that across disciplines, not just in running. And that's probably part of what makes me willing to, to start new things and take chances and, and do things that seem a, a little crazy. In running, you know... I think the Leadville race last year was is a good example, and it was it was a really important race for me because I had kind of been out of the out of the game for a little while. You know, I'd gotten too busy with life. I had I'd only run a couple of ultras the past several years. I'd never run a hundred miler. People didn't even know I was I was running or you know at all still or or that kind of thing. There was like a preview that the race did. You know, like fifteen men to keep an eye on. I wasn't there. You know, I wasn't one of them. I was sitting having a beer with, with my friend, RJ, who was part of my pacing and crewing the next day. And, and we were having a beer the day before the race and kind of talking through this. And I was nervous, of course. I, you know, I've never run this distance. I wanted to make sure I got it done. But on the other hand, I was like, when I talk through everyone's abilities and the way that they're going to race, there were a couple of pretty fast guys who I thought were going to go out too hard. They did. And, you know, my, my race plan, I was like, if I execute this plan, I can win this race. And I, and I, I don't think I'm any, I'm someone at that time that anyone would have been betting on, you know, to win the race. It seems a little ridiculous to say, and I'm, I'm cautious about saying those things out loud or to other people. You know, I was slowly over the summer when people would ask about it, I was kind of saying, well, you know, maybe top five, maybe podium if things go well. But really, you know, from the start, the whole time, I, I always think there's a chance I can win the race. And that's, you have to, because so much can happen in ultramarathon too. It's so I think you have to have that somewhere, and it doesn't have to be about winning, of course. Um, you know, everybody's at a different level, but I, I think you have to understand that. I guess two things. One is that it takes that belief and creating that image for yourself to execute and be successful. I think, but then also that accepting that that means that not all the outcomes are going to be great. You know, the external sort of sort of outcomes, not everything's going to go super well. To take your shot, you have to take a risk and it won't always go well. It didn't go well for me last weekend in Georgia, you know, I, where I had a race that I had to drop out of. So I've become very comfortable with all that, I think, over time, over my career as well. I love the point because I've spoken about it with people on the podcast before. I had a good friend of mine I used to play ball with wrote a book on baseball. And one of the anecdotes from the book was this major league pitcher. And he spoke about this moment in his career where a coach pulled him aside and basically said, you're better than everybody in this league, but you're not acting like it. And he talked about that moment being so monumental, this this mental shift of thinking I'm better than everyone in this league, which sounds a little bit egotistical. It sounds like hubris, but I'm a firm believer that you have to have that. For me in baseball, I, I face pitchers all the time that, unquestionably were light years better than me 
But if I step in that box and my mind is, well, you're better than me. I don't think I'm better. I don't have some internal arrogance or some unreasonable belief like you mentioned. I didn't have a chance. And I had days when I didn't believe that. And I certainly had bad days. And I loved You made me think when you mentioned you try to take that into all domains. I think there's a whole lot of difference here. But I think there's a little bit of that internal arrogance in this pursuit, especially when I sit down with Harvard-educated sociologists, Yale-educated philosophers, and think that I can hold up my end of the bargain. I think there's probably, optimism is probably a nicer word, but I think there's some hubris there. But if I'm being honest, I have little doubt that I can hold up my end of the bargain. Number one, because I've prepared, but number two, because I believe in myself. And if I didn't have that, I don't think I'd be as good in this pursuit either. So I love that point you made. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of vulnerability there too. I mean, putting yourself out there, uh, especially in, in the way you are. And, and you know, that I feel the same way about writing a little bit and all sorts of careers have, have that component to it. I mean, yeah, I'm in public office right now, which I've alluded to a few times and that that too, there's a lot of, you know, uh, kind of vulnerability there and and probably the a level of confidence to to say yeah I can I can do this and I can do this well and and you know it makes sense for me too. I'll just briefly share an anecdote from my college coach Paul Pilkington. He was on like a Pan Am team or something and roomed with a 400 meter runner from Jamaica who every morning for 5 minutes looked at himself in the mirror and told himself he was the best. Best 400 meter I think it was hurdles, 400 meter hurdler in the world. And Paul thought this was ridiculous and uh you know talked to him about it. And he was just like, yeah, he's like, if I don't believe it, like, how, how will I ever perform that way? And he's like, but you're not the best 400 meter like hurdler in the world. Like we have times to like show. And he's like, yeah, but I will be. And uh, <laughs> like, that's so cool. And then Paul told this story. He was 215 marathoner at the time, kind of trying to break through. And and I told this story to his wife. He, he like, wasn't that sure what to think about it. I think she got him a plaque that said I'm the best marathoner in the world and put it in their bathroom or something. And he had to find his own version of that, what made sense for him. For him was a conversation with himself the first mile of every run, talking to him, talking himself up and about what he was capable of. And and sure enough, pretty soon he broke through and he ran two eleven and, and won the LA marathon and had a you know some great career results that followed. I intentionally call it internal arrogance because you want to keep it internal. But one of the former guests called what we're talking about making space for greatness. And if you don't have that you can't make the space for greatness. You never take the leap, which I think is just so, so important. And there's a, definitely a thin line between what we're talking about and entitlement, and you got to be careful in that. But in athletic pursuits or in any pursuit, that degree of confidence to put yourself out there. You mentioned writing. I've, I, <laughs> I've written a bit, and you're right. That is terrifying, but especially because it's out there forever. Well, let's, let's move on to staying positive. You said that you try very hard to stay positive. What are your strategies to stay positive in a 100-mile in a race? And I'd like to ask you, because I thought about this in my pursuits, I don't know if positivity is it for me or just this innate, I'm not quitting, is kind of more me. Like, hey, I've got myself into this, but I'm not quitting. So is it positivity? And if it is, what are your strategies to stay positive? How does that manifest itself? Hmm, good question. I, I'm not sure I've ever thought about this in a way that I would like articulate strategies. I, I think I've got enough experience in ultra marathons to know that, that a lot can happen, you know, over the course of the race, even honestly, I mean, my entire running career, it has taught me that being patient and running intelligently and even splits often leaves you running from behind, but it, it is, it often pays off as well. And, you know, look, if you look at any big marathon, you know, just the, the sort of mass of people, just like 
pick up 100, 100 of the results, you know, at random, the number of people who even are negative split that marathon will be like three or four. People go out too hard, you know, and that's true almost across the board, even among professionals that can happen. Taking some confidence that you're executing your race plan and controlling everything that, that you can in the right way is going to, to, to pay off one way or another. And it's also about how you define success. I mean, yes, I want to, you know, win and I want to beat the folks I'm competing against. And that can be really important for getting everything out of yourself, you know, late in a race, that competition. But ultimately, I'm satisfied if I feel like I got the best race out of myself that I had in me on that day. And that's that's all I'm really ever after. You know, I've I've had some some days when that goes really well when I'm actually not super fit. So the time's not flashy compared to something I've run in the past. But I knew where I was at that moment in time and I, and I executed perfectly. And that's me, like that's the biggest success. Like that's what I'm trying to do because it's it's what we what I practice for and and it's such a sort of artful and and just a rewarding thing to do. I don't you know to spend eight or ten or twelve or eighteen hours trying to get everything just right. It's a game, you know, <laughs> but it's it's one that provides a lot of uh, insight, I think, into other areas of life and provides a lot of just meaning and I don't know that. Yeah. Meaning, well, that's it. Uh, what I'm hearing from you is your definition of positivity is kind of an optimism and a belief that something good is going to happen. If I stay on my path, I'm positive something's going to happen. Even if I'm feeling horrible right now, I'm staying optimistic. Maybe that's that's kind of what I'm hearing, which I think that makes a lot of sense for me. And I think a lot about controlling the things that are in your sphere of control and not dwelling on those that aren't. And that's probably a key component of being able to stay positive. And I, I, you know, I think of the same thing with my job right now, which, which is a a job I like a lot, but we've had some, some staffing things and other transitions and funding issues were like that I've been working kind of too many hours and had too much stress with some things, you know, over the last seven, eight months. I don't like that component of it, but I'm trying to take the steps to fix all those things and doing so in the best way that I can, which is a bit iterative and trying to figure it out. Like, how do I delegate more, but still assure quality? How do I, you know, advocate with my boss and, and others on the team to make sure that they understand my situation and and that where I am right now isn't a sustainable place and we need to get to a healthy and sustainable place and having the, you know, some, some of the patients to see some of those interventions to benefit from them, which may take some months. And trying to just be intentional about what's reasonable, what I can do, and checking in on those things. Totally different context, but I think, yeah, there's bad days. But overall, um, I feel really positive about the work and then also about how I'm approaching like a, a challenge with that work. No, I think it's a beautiful parallel. I mean, the idea that some short-time stress or short-time challenge is going to lead to long-term good, I think that ties very well in with optimism and positivity. One of the things I heard you say on a recent podcast was that you have to recover emotionally from these races. And that's never something I've thought about after athletic pursuit that I recover emotionally. I'm curious what this looks like. Is it an active process similar to a physical recovery? What's an emotional recovery look like for you? If you execute well in a big race like that, uh, there's at least two components that that are very draining. One is the emotional effort of the day, just like what it takes to focus <laughs> for 17 hours, you know, it's just a um, sort of mentally and, and emotionally draining experience. But then also, I think the period of buildup is kind of intense and you can't be in that state all the time. It's not not healthy. It's not you're not going to sustain it. You'll probably wind up injured. You're not going to maintain healthy and positive relationships with with others in your life. 
So I think these things kind of come and go and it's okay to have a, a pretty focused period for, you know, for something, even, even if some other things are uh, maybe suffering a little bit, you know, within reason through that time, but you've got to periodize that work. And for me, what, what recovering emotionally looks like, I think is just getting away from running in the sport for a little while. So I completely disconnect. I'm not, you know, I might, as, as I kind of get back into it a little bit, I might do some casual running, like just a little bit, but it's, it's very minimal, I guess. So on the sort of physical front, as well as the the mental and emotional front, uh, just trying to not think much about it uh, for a while and just take a proper break. And that's it. I mean, I mentioned um, when we, when we spoke previously, um, author in the Houston area that I like named Steve Magnus, and he's written two books called peak performance and uh, the performance paradox. And I think in peak performance, I was, I was really struck. I would say like the thesis of the book is that the parallels between physical stress and recovery and how, and how that works. And I'm, you know, I'm very familiar with all that in the context of running and how you improve and, and get better over time. You can't go hard all the time. It's, you know, hard, easy, hard, easy. You've got to let your body adapt to the stimulus you just provided. And that's true on a, on a daily, weekly cycle. It's also true on a year's kind of cycle. But the book brings in a ton of research on the parallel in, in our mental performance and our ability to perform at work. And that this, it's the same thing. You know, when you, you can go harder and harder, but when you do, you need a bigger break to recover from that. And it's kind of, there's a component of that that's inherent in the buildup for a, a really big goal race. Uh, so it's not just the physical element. You actually really do need the, the space to mentally and emotionally kind of engage in other things for a while, <laughs> I think. I think it's pretty impressive that you're mindful of that. And I think, again, that's more in the culture nowadays, but I think it's, it's pretty impressive that you think of your mind the same way you think of your body and you treat it appropriately. Let's go back to the physical with just a couple more questions here, but let's talk about your relationship with pain and suffering. It's clearly an enormous part of ultra running, I assume, who can suffer the most efficiently or the most productively or who can operationalize suffering seems to be my observation, but it clearly has some sort of appeal or some sort of draw. So I'm curious What's your relationship with pain and suffering? How you think about it? Or maybe you could share where you see it as beneficial and, and where you see it as not beneficial. Hmm. Yeah, another another good question that that uh there's a lot of ways to think about it or, or answer it, maybe. Of course, uh, yeah, all racing, I think, and not just ultra marathon running, but really any any distance of racing is is hard. It's you're you're suffering out there. The longer the race, the the more casual you, you get to be for like a longer period of time of course, because your pace is going to be slower, but it's a different kind of slow build and slow burn that comes on in an ultra marathon that you have to to work through and mentally manage and, and get through. And as far as my relationship with, with, I, I like suffering more than pain is how I would characterize it most of the time. Well, maybe there's a distinct difference. I like the idea of being mindful of our words. Pain to me signifies some sort of physical problem. Suffering to me signifies some sort of effort that you can exude or you can work through. So I, I like that distinction. Yeah. Keep going. I think there's maybe like a temporal element in mind too, in my mind as well, where like pain is, is something like acute or more acute and like suffering is like kind of this, this long thing <laughs> that can happen and trying to work through that and manage that is, I guess, yeah, like a, a big part of the challenge. You're trying to push yourself at a level in the race then that you would never be able to access otherwise. I mentioned that competition is actually essential for that. There's some kind of 
strategies, I think, in, in the running world and maybe others too, which is to break things into manageable pieces. Never, ever think about the finish and how long you have to go to the finish. That's, the, that's not what you do. You think about the next aid station or you think about the next turn in the trail, the next mile. You know, when I was at mile 82, you know, trying to break away from Ian and try to catch Anton and had a really big climb coming up, I wasn't focused on anything other than that climb and just striking that right balance of suffering just enough. You know that if you, you can always go a little bit harder in any given moment, but that's, that doesn't serve you well because you'll go, you'll redline and you'll fall apart. So it's not just about um, managing the suffering through good focus and breaking it into manageable parts. It's also knowing what the right amount of suffering is. You're, you're sort of, you have to be willing to take on more than, than you do in any other context, but it's, it's gotta be the right amount. And that's, that's like part of pacing strategies, part of all of it. And that's, that's like, what's so interesting. I think about the sport too, is, is that, uh, like, where else do you do that? Right. And sort of voluntarily engage in that and, and sort of be like, I need to suffer, but just the right amount. Well, actually you time. say, where else, where else do you do that? When you were saying that. I was thinking, what a great metaphor for life. Like, what a great metaphor for life. You have to find what suffering is enough, that is, what difficulty is enough to benefit you, and what is too much, because there's a thin line anywhere in life. I, I, I think sport is often a beautiful metaphor for life, but I think that is one of them. Well, let's wrap this up with one last question. I want to pull you back outside of running for this last question. You're seem to be pretty adamant about tackling big societal challenges. Climate change, I know, is something you're passionate about. And you seem to also be passionate about impacting this world. And so there's clearly some parallels between tackling difficult challenges on the trails and in life. But I'd like to finish by asking you where this comes from, this need to tackle big societal challenges, this need to make an impact outside of yourself? Yeah, I don't know for sure. I think there's some things that come to mind, though. The first is actually, um, I mean, certainly my parents were, were a very significant positive influence on, on me in terms of their outlook and orientation towards, towards the world. And, but my mom in particular, um, who was a social worker uh, in the public school system, had such a, an incredible service mentality. I'm sure that, you know, sort of imbued me with some level of that inherently, but I, it took me years to recognize it or find it. And what, what, what did it for me is when I was practicing law in Chicago, I, I had, this is an example of letting some external factors and, and definitions of success in law school kind of lead me on a path that, that wasn't the right fit ultimately. It was intellectually interesting work, but it was not healthy in terms of the time and it was not rewarding at all. To, to grossly oversimplify, I felt like we were basically just shifting money between large corporate actors like the, to no purpose at all to no productive purpose and just so much so many resources were going into that and lives being you know sacrificed to that and i recognized that all pretty quickly and got out of there and and went and kind of spent some time you know doing entrepreneurial things in the running space to to figure out what i did need and what i did want to do and like we talked about it it ultimately wasn't staying full time in the sport at least not now <laughs> you know maybe in the future who knows but i, I think experience of practicing law in that setting taught me that, okay, I clearly need to feel like I'm having some positive impact on, you know, from my work to find value in it. Obviously, global climate change and the impacts that are coming from it is a, is a really big societal and global problem that's, that's gotten a lot worse in the last 10 or 15 years in terms of its urgency. So I think growing awareness, I mentioned, you know, curiosity, I just 
was reading a lot of books about this topic and, and other things. That kind of became clear that some component of fairness and justice and helping folks who are going to be impacted most uh, significantly by some of these issues, either environmental justice or kind of climate justice issues, were, were motivating to me. I felt like it was an important problem to work on. The question was just kind of how to do that. I think my wife is another uh, really significant influence. So we've only been married about three years, but we've been together um, almost almost nine. And she, you know, works in uh, city government. Uh, she's an urban planner and, and has a, a really strong service lens in, in her work as well. So I think it became in, increasingly clear that that was important to me and it became a more central part of my values and identity through my uh, 20s. And, and that's kind of into my early 30s when I decided to go back to school. And I think it's been reinforced by the, by the type of work I do, which is, which is hard sometimes. I, I you know, mentioned a few times, I serve on the city council in Bloomington. I'm in year three of a four-year term. And that's often not rewarding work. You know, 90% of the people, if not more, who reach out to us about something are angry and, you know, upset about something. And it's, it's, it can be a very emotionally draining and negative space to be in, but it's also really important and, and at times rewarding. I don't know if I'll, you know, seek to do it again or not, but I'm glad I'm doing it. I've just, I've just found that, that um, even though it can be difficult and even though it's, you know, not like a particularly lucrative career or anything like that, it's very clear to me that like some form of public service and then something in the, in the kind of climate and environmental space is, is a really good fit for me. I, I feel grateful to have like found a good fit. Man, I think there was a lot of beautiful anecdotes in there. I appreciate you coming on. I, uh, I've got two individuals to cheer for in Leadville, you and David both. I'll be paying attention this year. But thank you for coming on and sharing your thoughts and kind of digging deep with me. I sure appreciate it, Matt. Sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Clay. It's great to have joined you for this conversation. 